Hey, this is Cole with the Bits and Pieces podcast. Now, you have a really special episode coming up today. Steven and I have found a device that allows us to go into different dimensions. Today, we're going to be going into a different and opposite dimension, different in every way, the complete opposite of this one, where Kyle is the host of the Bits and Pieces podcast. He will also be talking about things that are actually relevant and meaningful. On top of that, when he tells jokes, they'll actually be funny, unlike in this parallel universe. And now, without further ado, all I have to do is turn the Dimension device on and I'll send you guys on your way. This is Kyle, and this is the Bits and Pieces podcast. Welcome back to the show. There is not going to be any Cole or Steven. Sorry. I'm still in the show, and I'm actually going to be bringing some issues to the forefront for a project in my political ecology class. Um, So, sorry, Steve. Sorry, Cole. Hand it over. (laughs) Love you guys. So most of you know me, uh, I've been a frequent guest on the podcast. Just want to let you know that I intend on, um, after graduating, creating my own solo podcast, probably have some guests, probably do some philosophy, some, uh, some contemporary issues. And yeah, so if you're interested, maybe over there sometime, but to get started, I'm going to be talking about this uh, this podcast. This is actually a project of mine for my political ecology class. I'm going to be covering the issues of gentrification um, and class and race inequality in Over the Rhine in Cincinnati. I spent a lot of time there uh, the past couple years. I love Cincinnati. I love Over the, Over the Rhine. Uh, it's a really, really cool and just diverse area. So yeah, I really passionate about that subject. But first, I want to talk about uh, what what political ecology is. So it's a relatively new term. Uh, think about it, the, the politics of ecology. It's about taking a second look at environmental issues. In, in America, we often view the world through a really privileged lens, uh, being that we're like a first world country and we have a lot of assumptions about our way of of life that you know might be better than than another way and we make assumptions about uh the people of other countries that have experienced some really severe and detrimental environmental issues um but you have to look at you have to look at these issues on a deeper level you have to look at them through a second lens you have to think about, you know, has this country been subject to colonial powers? You know, do do the people in these in these exploited countries, these colonized countries, um, do they have a say in where they invest their capital? Do they have a say in what they do with their land? Because as you know, in the age of 
neoliberalism, uh, multinational corporations, people are, are, are very much exploited. People are very much used for uh, first world gain and economic uh, sustainability. On that subject, are the people from these these places, from these countries that that have such a close relationship with their land, are they maybe more informed than any any first world scientific perspective or understanding about a certain issue? There there is a large separation between indigenous knowledge and uh per se first world scientific knowledge. Uh, the relationships to issues at hand are way different. Um, so that brings me to um, my next subject. I'm going to be talking about my professor, Dr. Ferris. Shout out Dr. Ferris. Love Dr. Ferris. She's a huge influence for me, and I know she's a huge influence for uh, my, my classmates because this has been one of the coolest, one of the coolest classes I've taken, one of the like best, most... Uh, just just vibrant semesters I've had in college. Um, but Dr. Ferris is a political ecologist, and she did some field work in Tanzania um, with indigenous women farmers, and she was basically examining why they were at a loss for profit for the, the product which they were farming, which is... Um, uh, seaweed and seaweed is a huge global commodity. It's in a lot of products and basically was shedding light on the fact that these women had rights. Uh, they were give they were offering something very productive to society, um, and they weren't being they weren't being properly compensated and uh, they weren't getting what they deserved. So. Um, that those are the the kinds of things that Dr. Ferris does, and she works all over the place. So, um, thanks, Dr. Ferris. And now I will go into my project in um, about over the Rhine. Uh, and the, this project is more of a political geography issue than political ecology, but uh, the two issues intersect very much. Um, and uh, I I I just want to state outright that. This is more of an objective look at the issues of gentrification in Cincinnati rather than me imposing my political opinion um, on this issue. Um, so here we go. Uh, let's, let's go into the city. So I, I work in over the Rhine um, and I notice an interesting an interesting pattern. So Liberty Street. It runs east to west, and it basically cuts the neighborhood in half uh, between the northern and the southern half. And so there's Vine Street. Uh, Vine Street runs north to south, and it, it intersects with Liberty Street. And I park on the north side of Vine Street, and I walk down, I cross Liberty, and then I walk into the south side of Vine Street where I work. And... Here's some things I noticed. This is the really the inspiration for the, for this podcast for this project. Um, on the northern half of Vine Street, there's crumbling inf- infrastructure, uh, vacant buildings and shops, homelessness, uh, low income housing. Uh, there's a lack of 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 businesses in general. There's there's no there's nowhere to go get um, food or 
anything of that sort. There's no clothing shops. Um, and then on the southern uh, part of Vine, it's an absolutely, completely different um, narrative. Uh, there's restaurants and there's bars everywhere. Uh, it's loaded with hipster culture and there's a lot of expensive housing. So it's uh, it's a thriving neighborhood to say the least. Um, so I wanted to explore this more. So uh, in order to get a better idea of what I was doing for this project, um, I called up Cole, who is one of the hosts of this podcast. Um, and we went up to Over the Rhine one morning or early, early afternoon, and uh, we, we took a lot of pictures so we could get a, a closer look. And um, upon viewing these pictures, uh, here are some of the things we saw and some of the things we discussed. So common, common issue, uh, two juxtaposing things, two juxta- juxtaposing aesthetics, uh, ideals. So on both uh, sides of liberty, there is a framework for an urban community. Um, on the north side, you have a crumbling urban community. On the south side, you have a restored, uh, economically viable, thriving community. Um, and then you have two completely different socioeconomic communities just feet from each other. Um Liberty Street is probably 30, 40 feet wide. Um, and then literally right when you get to the edge of the road, it's the two communities are different. On the south, on the south side of Liberty, it's it's rich. Uh, it's now predominantly white. And then on the north side, you have low com- low income, uh, predominantly minorities. And then another, I think the most interesting thing that we saw and probably the most the most um bi- the biggest inf- inspiration for the theme of this podcast is uh that there are two opposing displays of art um and advertising so the art and the advertising oppose each other um along this margin of of liberty street um there are uh 3cdc development uh banners uh 3cdc is going to be a huge subject in this podcast uh, it is, this is a mouthful, the Cincinnati Center City Development Corporation. They are a nonprofit development corporation that uh, Cincinnati has introduced. Um, we'll get into it. And then, so across from these banners is this, this large mural which advocates for housing as a human right. Uh, this mural was actually painted by Artworks, uh, a company that my sister used to work for. Um, so what does this all tell you? Uh, so first it tells you that this is a class and a race issue. Uh, and second, that this is a slowly developing and inevitable process of removing people from their homes by economic force. Um, Low-income minorities are, are powerless to maintain ownership of their properties because um, economic interests really take they take priority over over human rights in a lot of situations. Um, so for the purposes of these this this issue I've put forth for you, I'm going to really go into what gentrification is, just like a general understanding, because everybody's heard it. 
everybody knows about it. Everybody's studied it in school. Um, everybody's seen it. it. It happens in every city across America. Anywhere you go, you see this uh, really bizarre, this really bizarre divide uh, in not only aesthetic, but, but uh, wealth. And there's just a massive wealth gap. So the way I will, will be um, explaining gentrification is in three phases. So phase one starts with what you call urban pioneers. These are young, usually college graduated, uh, white, artistic minded people. They're open minded. Uh, they like the conveniences of the city. And they're willing to put up with what a suburbanite or an outsider to an urban community would consider uh, a bad aspect or an evil of living in an urban community. Um, so they buy these cheap properties and they establish an appealing trend. Um, so this, this gets hold of other people of, of the same age group and socioeconomic standing. And then more people, more like-minded people move to these communities. And then you get phase two. So phase two, uh, because of this change in the urban fabric, real estate developers, uh, they see they see opportunity and take interests as well as upper and upper middle class people uh, because the property value is low and they see opportunity for profit. Um, and another thing I've noticed is this uh, fetishization, fetish, <laughs> big word, fetishization of uh this old architecture, uh, developers or investors, they have this ideal of taking this, this vintage building and turning it into something, you know, beautiful, a piece of art. It has artistic value. Um, so the developers, they, they buy these cheap properties from the original owners and then they re they reinvigorate them, uh, restore them, and here comes phase three. So longtime residents, um, after developers have bought properties, they'll still occupy these buildings or, or buildings nearby that have been purchased by developers. And because uh, these properties have become more desirable, the government begins reinvesting in the infrastructure. So the property tax goes up. So the people who own these these apartment buildings or uh, these these housing complexes, um, they have to raise the rent. Uh, so by the time the the long time tenants lease is up, they have to they charge them more rent and then they cannot afford it and they are are removed from the property or have to leave the property because they can't afford the rent. Um, here's the issue with this is. The, the government gets incentive uh, to encourage gentrification because if the property value goes up, then they get more revenue. So how does this apply to Over the Rhine? Um, so Over the Rhine has had a, a really complicated, interesting history. Um, and I'm going to take you through... Um, a, th a few different decades of over the Rhine's history that ultimately have, have led up to 
the the culture and the dynamic of the neighborhood as it is today. Um, so let's step back into the 80s. So a social activist from the Cincinnati suburbs named Buddy Gray, uh, a, he's a, a college graduate. He is a left-wing radical, and he sympathizes with the poor. Uh, so he moved to Over the Rhine, and he established the Over the Rhine uh, People's Movement. And he had a Vietnam War era uh, t- way of of interacting, um, debating, and negotiating with uh, the government, with the government, with the Cincinnati government. Um, so the, this movement he started, it's a movement, uh, it fought off urban developers to preserve the neighborhood for low-income residents, and he also got the local government to invest in his, in low-income housing in Over the Rhine. Um, and as a result, low-income um, housing, you know, it's everywhere. The population in a OTR drastically fell. Uh, and the city, the city ultimately, com- like completely disinvested from over the Rhine, and this resulted in a really high crime rate. Um, and this was amid amidst the crack e- e- epidemic, so not a not a bright situation. Um, a lot of scholars and historians, you know, they they know that Buddy Gray may have had. Um, the people's best interest in mind, but was instrumental in, in really perpetuating the cycle of poverty in over the Rhine. So this disinvestment from the city, uh, from over the Rhine resulted in a lot of lopsided investment. Um, and what happened was the city took the revenue and they invested it in the riverfront. So this is where we get the Red Stadium and the Bengals Stadium, millions and millions of dollars, and also invested in the in the business district, which is where, um, which is where Fountain Square is, which is the basically the city center of Cincinnati. So there was no investment in over the Rhine. There was all the investment in the riverfront and the business district. Fast forward to to April seventh, two thousand one. Um, the Over the Rhine neighborhood is still heavily influenced by Buddy Gray. His work was heavily ingrained in the neighborhood. Um, April 7, 2001. A white officer shoots an unarmed 19-year-old African-American kid and kills him. Uh, civil unrest breaks out. People are rioting, looting, and destroying the neighborhood. And this is... Um, this is very relevant to what we have experienced in the past couple years. Uh, in 2020, we had, you know, the nationwide Black Lives Matter movement and uh, people who were destroying and looting and, and wrecking these neighborhoods. Uh, they gave peaceful protesters uh, a bad name. So government officials assume the worst about everyone. Uh, so because of this, uh, this instilled this motivation in the city government, the city officials to, to change this issue of, of um, 
poverty, of violence, of crime. And from the time of the riot until 2009, over the Rhine had gained, as a lot of you may know, a reputation of being one of America's most dangerous neighborhoods, most crime-ridden neighborhoods, um, high homicide rates, high property uh, crime rates. So this is where 3CDC came from. Um, and so the city, uh, Cincinnati, they scrapped their urban development uh, department completely. They no longer... Um, thought that Cincinnati was capable of of funding development projects through the government, so they went with a neoliberal strategy to renew the city, which which involved um, private corporations invested, and they are the ones who paid for for the development of the city rather than the government. Um, so. One of the biggest, one of the biggest um, corporations involved in funding three CDC was P and G. P and G is a staple of Cincinnati. It's like arguably the biggest corporation there, along with a lot of other corporations. Uh, they invested about a half a billion dollars um, into three CDC, who has been actively developing the city since two thousand three. Um, so by 2010, we see a drop in crime rates, actually. Uh, they've been the lowest they have been in the, in the past decade. Uh, infrastructure is revitalized, um, and jobs have returned to over the Rhine. Um, and here we are in 2021. Uh, and considering the, the conditions I mentioned earlier about this this juxtaposed uh, one neighborhood but separate, uh, almost segregated place. Um, is 3CDC a good, a good guy or a, a bad guy? Are they a friend or a foe? Um, did they have everyone's best interests in mind? Um, so to, to have you answer some of those questions, I'm going to put some statistics out there. So according to the 2000 census, over the Rhine was 19.4% white and 76.9% African-American. And then in 2018, fast forward 18 years, over the Rhine was 34% white and 54% black. So there has been an influx in, in the white population, but the next statistic really sheds light on what the issue at hand is here. Um, in 2014, the developed sector, the south side of Liberty Street, was two-thirds white and one-third black. So, and the undeveloped northern half was 80% black. So, huge influx, a uh, huge change in the neighborhood, in the fabric of the neighborhood, in the culture of the neighborhood. And um, I have a feeling that the north side may also end up showing the same trend uh, in coming years as it did on, on the south side. Um, they have yet to develop that northern half, uh, but 3CDC development is slowly creeping into that, that sector. Um, so the city was so determined to lower the crime rate and keep the neighborhood from falling apart 
that they went with a, a relatively drastic in, investment scheme. Um, the development came from outside the community, from economically privileged people, uh, upper middle class, uh, rather than the people who had already lived there. Um, so the people who lived there were not necessarily desirable for the goals of 3CDC. Um, that being said, 3CDC, they do invest millions of dollars into homeless shelters and housing projects, but it almost seems as a way to uh, clean up some of the issues that may or may not have been caused by their actions. So, um, in conclusion, the statistics are clear. Uh, the crime rates have gone down um, since 3CDC took hold of the community, uh, and the city's been revitalized. But, on the other hand, the color of the neighborhood has changed uh, completely. That, that, that is something that, in and of itself, um, is a testament to what has happened in the neighborhood. Um, and the social fabric of the neighborhoods are different. Um, you know, on, on this southern side of Liberty... You have you have bars and restaurants and uh, trendy businesses where there may have once been a, a black owned um, um, hardware store or convenience store or grocery store, and in my opinion, um, bars are not necessarily a, a societally um, productive thing. Um, so, you know, in essence, this has really, this project really changed the way that I think about marginalization. Um, margins are seemingly static. Uh, you know, when you think about margins, it's a, it's an edge. It's, um, it's a boundary, uh, which in this case it is a boundary, but this boundary is dynamic and it's changing and it's, it's pushing people in different directions, directions geographically. It's pushing them out of their neighborhoods. Um, and they, it's, it's a slow process uh, that, that people can't see until it's already happened and people lose their homes, people lose their communities. Um, and they have to go elsewhere. So it's up to you to think about this do you think that um, 3CDC has done uh, more good than bad? Uh, I think, do you think they've properly invested, uh, uh, sustainably invested in these communities? Um, you know, there's good and bad. So let me know what you think. Um, feel free to get in contact with me. Most uh, know me. Thanks for listening. Uh, shout out Dr. Ferris. Thank you. Uh, read a book, do some research, change the world. Love you guys. Thanks for listening. Have a good one.